0: Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking to Sarah Bush and Lauren Prather about their new book, Monitors and Meddlers. Then we talk to Marcin Al-Shamadi and Hamza Haddad about their recent article on the underdevelopment of, of the South of Iraq and the implications of that for understanding the nature of democracy in the state in Iraq. Thanks for listening to our podcast. is the middle east political science podcast i'm mark lynch on this week's book segment we talked to sarah Sunbush of yale university and lauren prather of the university of california san diego about their new book monitors and meddlers how foreign actors influence local trust in elections which uh, just came out with cambridge uh sarah and uh, lauren thanks for joining us thanks for,
1: thanks having, for us.
2: having us
0: So tell us a little bit about this book and uh, what the major contribution is to our study of of Middle East and political science. Sarah?
1: Thanks. Sure. So this is a book about how foreign actors influence elections around the world. And some types of foreign influences on election are in the news a lot. We know that um, for those of us who live in the US and have experienced um, the 2016 and 2020 election, um, but a lot of foreign influences in elections um, may be things that grab fewer headlines, like the presence and reports of international observers, which monitor most countries' elections around the world. Um, and in this book, what Lauren and I wanted to understand was how the presence and activities of these very different types of foreign influences on elections, the monitors and also meddlers that are in the book's title, affect whether citizens have trust in their country's elections. Um, This is a book that we think matters because citizens' trust in elections is crucial for um, countries' trajectories in terms of democracy and stability. Uh, A lack of trust in elections has been linked to bad outcomes like citizens no longer voting in elections, um, as well as uh, post-election violence, among other things. Uh, So um, that's what our books sought to understand. And uh, we develop and test uh, what we call a theory of the citizen that argues that foreign influences on elections can shape citizens' trust uh, in their elections, but only under the right conditions. It especially matters Uh, Which party a a citizen supports in the election if they support an elections um, winner or loser, um, and whether they believe that the the foreign actor is capable and willing of influencing a country's election. Um, so so that's what the book is about. We draw on uh, surveys that we conducted in several different countries, and um, we began our research in Tunisia um, and have a, both of us a particular interest in that country, and so excited to talk about that, um, our findings there with the podcast listeners.
0: Great. Well, Lauren, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about these monitors and meddlers and, uh, and also maybe a little bit about the methodology that you developed in order to uh, make sense of it.
2: Absolutely. Um, And thanks for having us. So one of the main reasons that we wanted to study international monitoring and meddling um, with a particular focus on their effects on citizens is that there's been a fair amount of research about where international election monitors go. So these are typically uh, groups from international organizations or non-governmental organizations that go to other countries' elections to monitor the electoral process and evaluate it according to international and domestic standards. Um, And the idea according to uh, many high quality monitors is to promote confidence in elections where possible. Um, And our research identified a gap in this literature where previous scholars had focused on the effects of international monitors on uh, episodes of fraud, um, so the actual quality of elections, but had skipped this um, other outcome that monitors hope to affect, which is public confidence in elections. And so um, we started our research thinking about um, international monitors and their effects on confidence, especially given that monitors now are Uh, involved in more than 80% of countries' elections around the world. So this is a phenomenon that's very important to understand. Um, And then we saw the 2016 election in the United States with this episode of Russian interference and sort of increasing worries, concerns about international actors um, manipulating elections and trying to influence elections to actually tilt the playing field. So You can think about monitors as trying to make the electoral playing field equal across candidates and give everyone a fair chance, whereas international actors who are seeking to meddle in elections are trying to tip the scales in favor of their preferred candidate. Um, And so, again, there's been research uh, um, collecting data on these episodes of meddling, where meddling occurs, what its effect is on the election. Um, When a meddler intervenes in an election to tip the scales in favor of their preferred candidate, does that candidate win? Is there closer relations between these countries if the candidate wins? But the worry after the 2016 election in the United States was that once the public found out about this meddling, that uh, Americans' trust in elections would be um, undermined. Um, And we know there are instances of meddling all over the world, and so we actually wanted to explore this, too, with some of the same mechanisms and theoretical framework that we had developed around election monitoring. So our methodology was to look at three different cases that we thought varied in terms of level of democracy, use survey experiments to try to inform people about monitoring or meddling in the country, and observe the effects of these informational interventions on citizens reported confidence in a recent election.
0: There's an interesting uh, uh, a wrinkle in all of that when you're talking about the monitors, you talk about these so-called these zombie monitors, um, which have somewhat different effects.
2: Yeah, so one of the compelling findings in our study in Tunisia was that one of the monitoring groups that was present at um, Tunisia's parliamentary and presidential elections in 2014 was a monitoring group from the Arab League, which doesn't have a strong reputation internationally for um, monitoring uh, at a standard that is similar to um, more high-quality monitors, so they don't send large missions to the countries. Um, and of course, their member states are largely authoritarian, so it's sort of puzzling that they would be promoting democracy through their monitoring, if at all. Um, And so we were curious, the Arab League doesn't quite meet the standard of a true zombie organization in that there are member states they meet regularly. There is infrastructure and institutions around the Arab League. And they do send um, a reasonably sized um, mission to countries. Um, On the flip side of things, these true zombie organizations um, are organizations that um, are exist in sort of name only, and they really go to states to try to prop up clearly fraudulent elections. So they have names that are democratic sounding, these organizations do, and they are, are simply there to kind of rubber stamp the election for autocrats. And our research can speak to that as well, because one of the primary reasons an autocrat would want to invite these zombie monitors is to influence the citizens into thinking that the election was more credible than it actually was. And so our research can speak to that, because, again, the outcome that we're seeking to understand is people's trust in the election.
0: Well, Let's talk about those effects a little bit. Sarah, can you tell us about some of the interesting findings that you had as you were looking through these cases?
1: Sure. Um, So just to build on what Lauren was discussing, um, you know, one of the findings that we found most interesting is that it is um, that there can be a disjuncture between the observers that citizens in a country that's being observed by international monitors you know, what what those people think um, makes for a good monitor, and then what international audiences or scholars might think make for a good monitor. So, you know, Tunisian respondents in our study thought that the observers from the Arab League that we asked them about in our survey, um, not the observers from more sort of typically highly regarded groups, like ones from the European Union or American groups, Tunisians perceived observers from the uh, Arab League as both kind of relatively capable of detecting fraud and also relatively unbiased or willing to detect fraud in the cases where it um, occurred. And we conclude that it's this relatively positive impression that Tunisian respondents had of the Arab League observers that accounts for why it was the Arab League observers that uh, increased Tunisians' trust in the election Relative to the other observers that we discussed in our studies, as well as relative to um, not having heard any information about election observers at all. And the book built on that finding to show that there are patterns from the US and Georgia, which were the two other cases that we studied in depth that also um, Uh, confirm that observers who are perceived by the public as being relatively capable and unbiased are the ones that are most likely to increase trust. And the findings also extend to the more nefarious types of foreign influence, specifically meddling. And here we found across our cases some evidence that when meddlers are perceived, that that in order to to detract from people's trust in elections, meddlers need to be perceived by the public as capable of influencing the electoral playing field. Meddlers that aren't perceived as having that kind of capability are less likely to diminish the public's trust in elections. Um, So who is doing the intervention? across our cases really matters.
0: And one of the interesting findings I, I thought was uh, one you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that it matters who wins the election and which side you're on, and uh, which kind of makes intuitive sense, right? If you supported Trump, then of course, you're not going to believe that it's the Russians that put in there. Um, and if you're on the, on the other side, you might.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, across all of the countries where we conducted our surveys, there's a substantial winner-loser gap in electoral trust, which means that people who supported a candidate or party who won the election had a lot more trust than people who supported a candidate or party that lost the election. Um, And then what we find is that the foreign influences on elections just make this winner loser gap in some cases even larger. So it magnifies the polarization in trust. Um, So uh, especially in Tunisia um, and also in the US when we conducted surveys there, people who supported the losing candidate or losing party, they tended not to be very reassured by hearing good news from election monitors that the elections were actually of high quality. Um, and that was a sobering finding because the people who lose elections are the ones that we might hope mm-hmm. to reassure by presenting them with information from high quality election monitors. Um, you know, likewise, kind of like you were getting at, Mark, when people um, are thinking about meddling, if your candidate wins the election, you are much less likely to be worried about meddling. And also, um, you know, we find some evidence that you're less likely to want to take, in, in some of our other research outside of the book, you're less likely to want to take steps to um, address meddling. Um, and so, so so, these are, we think, you know, interesting findings, but also a bit troubling from the perspective of um, democracy globally.
0: You juxtapose uh, those findings against what you call like the conventional wisdom. What is the conventional wisdom?
2: Yeah, so the conventional wisdom, again, is, is part of what inspired us to do this work, which is it was sort of taken for granted in the literature on election monitoring, that election monitors would have this confidence building effect, that that um, they improve or, you know, there's mixed evidence, at least, that they improve the quality of elections. And that sort of assumption would be that following that, they should also improve confidence in elections. And so the conventional wisdom is that if people hear about the presence of international monitors at their election, or if they hear that a monitoring group has evaluated the election positively, that that should increase confidence. And then on the flip side if they evaluate the election negatively that that should decrease confidence um, and similarly with meddling this was the conversation um in the punditry in the united states that uh russian involvement in the election was going to do serious damage to american confidence in elections so um that would imply that when people hear about meddling it undermines their confidence and makes them less trusting in their elections um and so we juxtapose our the, the factors that Sarah was just talking about that um, actually people's individual biases based on who they supported the election and their perceptions of international actors are actually going to condition these effects. So it's not as straightforward as just saying monitors improve confidence and meddlers decrease confidence, that we actually have to um, think about uh, certain conditioning factors that are going to matter. Um, And and I'll also bring up a third one here, which is that the electoral context matters. So the country, um, the level of democracy and the certainty that citizens have in their belief in the system matter a lot. So um, for Tunisia, it was a really interesting case for us because it was the first elections for parliament and president after the Arab Spring. So this was an election that should have had a great deal of uncertainty and which is one of the reasons we chose to pursue um, our research there. It was a blank slate, lots of potential uncertainty about the quality of the election and sort of a good opportunity for us to study the effects and a likely case to find effects um, in, in on trust in elections. On the flip side, we studied the country of Georgia. And people there, it's a partial democracy. It has some good aspects of democracy and some more um, autocratic uh, aspects to it. And people are pretty certain that their elections are mediocre. Um, And our interventions didn't have huge effects there, partially because people just weren't very uncertain about the quality of their elections. So we couldn't really move people because they had a lot of certainty about how they Mm -hmm. felt already.
0: Now, as you said, you have these three case studies and they vary in all these interesting ways. Um, For the Middle East uh, audience, obviously, Tunisia is going to be the one that uh, that will be the most interesting. Um, Sarah, maybe you could walk us through a little bit, um, you know, kind of some of the other key findings from uh, your approach to Tunisia.
1: Um, I, I think that that we've touched on some of the more important findings from that case um, in terms of the disjuncture between um, domestic perceptions of foreign actors and international ones, as well as the importance of the electoral context. Um, So two of the most important findings from Tunisia were um, the finding about the disjuncture between the domestic and international perceptions of foreign actors, as well as the importance of the electoral context. I think, I think that there's also a great opportunity for Middle East politics scholars in general to be looking at the question of foreign interventions and in elections. Um, something that we focused on in our research design was the um role of the U.S as well as to some extent sort of Western actors in this space in general as compared to more regional actors but I think that the Middle East you know as we know is a region where there um, are diverse foreign influences on elections that's not something that's unique to the Middle East region but is definitely characteristic of elections there and so I in thinking about how people might build on some of our findings going forward I think that would be a great area to look even more at the multiplicity of actors that are engaged in um, influences on domestic politics, as well as influences on elections specifically, and to, to see if our theory can extend to them.
0: Maybe we could take a step back and talk about your methodology a little bit more. So you said you ran these surveys in uh, in a number of countries tell us more about like what exactly you did and how you went about trying to um, get at uh the these these questions of the impact of monitors and metal alerts
2: yeah so this was um something that was really important to us and was actually one of the features of the Tunisian election that attracted us to that case as well which was that um most countries have either big national elections for legislative and executive bodies, either separated by a year or two years or even three or four years, um, or they have them on the same day simultaneously. Um, And we were really curious about how uh, beliefs about one election would spill over or affect confidence in a subsequent election. But that's really hard to study when elections are either held on the same day or held many years apart. And what was really interesting about the Tunisian case was that the parliamentary election was held in October and then the presidential election first round was held in November and then the second round in December. And this sequence of big national elections following each other very close in time is a pretty rare um, occurrence, um, but allowed us to... um, field a panel where we interview respondents in our survey at one moment of time and then follow up with them in a later moment of time. Um, And it's important to have those, um, the time between those two waves as close as possible so that um, you can ensure more people return to your study. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we were able to, in, in the Tunisia case, field a study right after the parliamentary election, and then follow up with those same respondents um, after the second round of the presidential election. Um, And we kept this feature across all of our subsequent cases, with the exception of in future cases, we, we had to make our panel occur before the election, and then a few weeks after the election. So all of our cases feature that similar design, which is we follow up with um, the same participants at a later moment of time. Um, in some cases, introduce new interventions, new information about an election, um, or we are also just trying to see the evolution of confidence in elections across time um, among respondents in our control group. So, um, so we have this initial study in Tunisia. Then we had. Um, We've now I think done four surveys in uh, the United States after the 2016, 2018, 2020, and 2022 elections. Um, So these were again surveys um, fielded before and after the election. And then in Georgia, we studied the presidential election um, in 2018 and we fielded a survey before that election and then uh, at the end of the second round or runoff um, election. Yeah. Um, So let me just say surveys are like providing
0: different framings and different treatments. um,
3: Exactly.
2: Yeah, exactly. So in the case of uh, many of our pre-election studies about election monitoring, we're randomizing um, different pieces of information to different um, experimental groups. And usually the manipulation is about the actor that's involved, either naming a different monitoring group or naming a different foreign meddler or varying um, the um, pieces of information about the monitoring group's um, capabilities and biases. So usually those are our Mm -hmm. pre-election studies, interventions. Uh, And then post-election, for our monitoring... Uh, experiments, we're randomizing the evaluation the monitors made about the election. Of course, you can only do that after the effect or after the election. Um, and we're using real pieces of information included in monitors reports. So we're pulling out positive um, parts that they mentioned in the ele- uh, their election reports. And then a different group is reading about sort of negative um, features of the election that monitors picked out. Um, And we're using those interventions to try to see whether different elements of a monitor's report affect um, trust. And again, with meddling, we're doing the same thing. We're talking about um, uh, the likelihood of meddling occurring at the election. I will say one other feature that um, might be interesting to people doing field work in this space is we faced a bit of a puzzle in Georgia because um, We kept uh, talking to experts in the field about whether there would be real instances of meddling reported or detected by intelligence officials, and there wasn't. So we were faced with, in Georgia, how we were going to, whether we were going to deceive people and provide them false information about the occurrence of meddling. But we were also very worried about doing that because we were theorizing that these information would decrease trust in elections. And we didn't want to be in a position where we were giving people false reasons to be skeptical of their election. And we didn't think debriefing in this case would be um, enough. So instead, we had to actually use kind of question order experiments to try to raise the salience of meddling in people's minds without actually telling them that it was occurring. So in that case, we gave people um, some people, a question about whether they thought meddling was occurring before the um, confidence and election questions. And then our control group group did not receive that question about meddling. So we had to um, kind of pivot a little bit in the way that we designed our, our experiment, because again, we didn't want to provide false information about meddling um, to these, um, to our participants.
0: Right, right. No, that's really interesting. Um, so Sarah, can you tell a uh, Talk to us a little bit about some of the bigger implications of this then uh, for policy, for act, for theory. Um, what are the big takeaways from uh, your conclusions?
1: Yes. So um, thanks for asking that. I think that from kind of a policy perspective, the book proposes two issues uh, that the findings can um suggest ways to move forward on. Um, One is the problem of what happens when people ignore high quality information about the credibility of their election. So, you know, people are being told that the election really is credible, but they're nevertheless ignoring that and distrusting the election result or the reverse. Um, and we suggest that the findings highlight important strategies that um, specifically election monitors might be able to use to make sure that their high quality so something that high quality election monitors can use to make sure that their high quality information does reach the public and um, get treated with the seriousness uh, with which it deserves. Um, uh, it's not just about getting the information from the reports out there, but it's making sure that the public perceives these election monitors as capable and unbiased. Um, and, you know, many election observers are already taking some strategies to try to ensure that those kinds of qualities are highlighted to the public, but it may be possible that more can be done to, to demonstrate their trust-enhancing um uh characteristics so you know making sure that the public understands that high quality election observers may be made up of uh a group of individual observers who have good local knowledge and are not you know ex- even if it's from a US group like the Carter Center or National Democratic Institute the individual monitors may hail um from many different countries, they may hail from a lot of regional locations, um, uh, and are not necessarily, you know, representing a U.S. bias or 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 perspective in during their work. So, so that's some, you know, something that our book suggests uh, um, can be done to try to um, make sure that people are getting good information. Um, there's also the problem of combating bad information, which is something that I think is a much larger conversation about disinformation and misinformation and what we can do about that in both the global North and South. Um, this is something that our book also speaks to. Um, you know, and one you know point that we kind of muse on in the book is that sometimes um Uh, low quality information can be combated in the political realm more effectively when people find out that there's lots of different people and groups that are discrediting the bad information. And this happens sometimes in the space of elections. So in Tunisia, there were a lot of different election observers that were present. That's very typical for countries. It's also the case in Georgia that there were multiple observers that were present. You know, most countries don't invite just one group, but they invite, you know, sometimes literally dozens of different organizations to be present. Um, and if, as was the case in 2014 in Tunisia, the observers are kind of united in their message that, okay, the election wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good and it met a lot of international standards, um, you know, that's a way that um, that that forces in society that may be trying to spread bad information um, can be... Um, fought against, uh, although, you know, it's complicated, um, as we know, also from U.S. politics to combat the bad information.
0: Laura, were there any, were there any other implications that you think are worthwhile uh, for scholars or policymakers to take away from from the book?
2: Yeah, so let me um, just mention, since Sarah, I think, covered the monitoring side of things, let me just um, speak to the meddling side of things. You know, so one of the kind of troubling patterns that we observe in our studies is that winners aren't movable at all. Um, they believe elections are wonderful since their candidate or party won, um, and basically nothing that you tell them about, you know, the poor quality of the election or the presence of meddling can dissuade them of this fact. Um, and the downstream implications of this for meddling are as follows. So if I am a candidate who wins and I won because of the assistance of meddling, but my constituents don't really care about that, all they care about really is that we won, then I'm less likely to actually enact laws in the future to protect elections. And so um, We don't necessarily have a policy solution for this, but this is something that we think, um, you know, democracy promotion advocates and um, advocates for the security of elections and the prevention of election interference need to understand is that when candidates win with the support or, you know, inadvertent or otherwise of a foreign interferer, they're less likely to actually want to make any changes to the system to protect elections. And so policymakers, practitioners, we know there are, we've talked to a number of organizations that are trying to promote the seriousness of foreign threats to elections um, around the world. And our book identifies some of the political constraints that that, that they are going to bump up against when they're trying to Encourage countries to make changes to their electoral infrastructure, or otherwise, to spend money to address a threat that they that they might benefit from, right? right. Um, and so this is this is a real political challenge, I think, as we move forward and try to get countries to pass anti meddling um, policies.
0: Oh, great! We've been speaking to Sarah Bush and Lauren Prather about their new book, "Monitors and Meddlers." the middle east political science podcast i'm mark lynch and on this week's uh, topical segment we talked to Marcin al-shamari of the harvard kennedy schools middle east initiative and hamza haddad an adjunct fellow at the center for new american security about a new article of theirs which just came out in the journal international peacekeeping entitled the collective neglect of southern iraq uh Marcin, hamza thank you so much for joining us
4: thanks mark thanks mark so
0: why don't you uh, tell us, uh, just to start off, a little bit about the article and uh, you know what the motivation was and what the major contributions are.
4: Yeah, well, as you know, with me, it's always personal. So I used to travel a lot in Southern Iraq over the years, uh, since 2003. And I noticed year after year that the situation there wasn't improving very much when it came to services, when it came to just how the cities looked, you know, the lack of paved roads, the lack of infrastructure, uh, just a very bad situation altogether. And to me, it was really puzzling why this was the case, because for years, while other parts of Iraq were engulfed in uh, security crises and in, in terrorism, Southern Iraq was actually relatively stable and also was relatively homogenous. The population was mainly Shia Arab. It wasn't very mixed. Um, and in addition to that, it was a very wealthy area. Most of Iraq's wealth comes from Southern Iraq. And as a political scientist, I thought, you know, all these factors that usually ensure stability and ensure development and well-being really didn't result in a good outcome for Southern Iraq. And for years, I've been puzzled as to why this was the case. So, um, I mean, Hamza and I talk about this all the time. We, you know, we discuss the state of southern Iraq. We're always we've always been confused and always had many hypotheses as to why it's the case. So we were approached by Irena Constantini and Dylan O'Driscoll, and they were doing a um, a special issue mm-hmm. for the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. And they asked us if we'd work on something. And we thought, you know, this is the perfect time to ask this question. Why is a place like southern Iraq not doing well, despite all the factors that would suggest otherwise?
0: So so. do you want to tell us a little bit then about how you approach this question?
3: Yeah, so... We make the argument that Southern Iraq is a region, although unofficially like the Kurdistan region, uh, it is seen as a nation imagined, um, taking from Benedict Anderson's idea uh, of imagined uh, communities. And so we apply it at the subnational level in Southern Iraq, um, and we, we factor things that that tie them together, like identity, language, religion, tribal linkages, and obviously shared experience of, of, of repression over decades. Um, and again, we were excited to, to take it on from this angle, because like I said, a lot of the times when it comes to regions, uh, substate state um, governments in Iraq, it's obvious, it's usually focused on Iraqi Kurdistan, and the South tends to be ignored.
0: It is interesting. I mean, the the puzzle that you framed really is a very interesting one. And before we get into the explanations for it, maybe we could go into a little more detail, uh, as you do in the article, um, about the scale and scope of this uh, relative underdevelopment of, of the region.
4: Yeah, for sure. So I was describing to you my experience from fieldwork, which Hamza mm-hmm. shared as well, having done fieldwork in southern Iraq. Uh, but then we also realized that many of the protests that are service-based that had erupted in Iraq over the years also came from the south. So the most famous one, the 2018 protest movement that I think people are most familiar with, was really a southern protest movement in pretty much every sense of the word. Uh, and it really got a lot of attention for being so. And when you look at the actual, you know, data and the actual development indicators in the South, it's doing very poorly um, and actually doesn't receive much attention from international organizations. So basic things like the availability of hospitals, like how many, you know, how many hours of electricity are available. Um, levels of pollution, uh, cleanliness of water, all these things it ranks very badly along all these indicators
0: and the fact that it does, given the the you know ostensible Shia domination of the government, I mean again, as you say it is quite a puzzle. um why don't you walk us through some of the uh, some of the hypotheses and arguments that you work through in the article?
3: So one of the the arguments that we uh focused on was the history before 2003, that southern Iraq really was affected by the sanctions more than any part of the country uh, throughout the 1990s. It also faced the brunt of a lot of uh, warfare, uh, Basra in particular with uh, the 1990 Gulf War and the eight-year war with Iran in the 1980s. So there was definitely uh, a factor of southern Iraq really impacted, um, and this impacted its development, allowing it to start at a lower development baseline than the rest of the country. And I think that was really important to emphasize in this article, because like you said, the political leadership in Baghdad after 2003 is, um, is dominated by Shia political parties who come from the south.
0: But you make the really interesting point that even though they come from the South, they tend to be focused on the national level and their political aspirations.
4: Yeah, so we really put forth three arguments that Hamza outlined the first one, which I think is the most important because it lays the groundwork. It's the idea Uh that we started at a lower development baseline. But like you both noted, it is really puzzling. This is the region that produced most of Iraq's prime ministers. I mean, what is it, Hamza? Um,
3: I mean... Ibrahim right. al uh, Nourin Maliki, Adil Abdul Mahdi, Mustafa al-Kadimi and Mohammed Shah al-Sudani the current prime minister all are from southern Iraq.
4: That's a majority of the post 2003 prime ministers being from southern Iraq and the you know some of them are from like the most recent one is from the deep south. And nevertheless, you don't you don't get any attention on these regions from politicians that you would think are invested in making sure these regions support them because they're where the electoral power comes from. I mean, without the votes that these regions give politicians in parliament, there is no way they could be able to amass enough seats to become prime ministers. And yet that never really translates into services or into uh, better outcomes for these provinces. And this really was confusing to us. So one of the other uh, hypotheses we we reached, and this one came as a result of a lot of conversations with political elites in Iraq. It's the idea that the political elites in Iraq from the south have come to the conclusion that they've done their they've done their service. They've done they've given their uh, dues to the population by simply representing them, simply by being you know, Shia Arabs in Baghdad, mm-hmm. by holding the seat of national power, and that they don't really owe their constituents much else. Of course, this is going to change in the upcoming years, but between 2003 and today, this is what's happened. They think that all they owe their constituents is this representation in name, not necessarily translating into anything. And when it does translate into anything, it translates into patronage rather than uh, whole-scale development. And patronage in Iraq usually results in income inequality at the local level, where you see entire governorates that are mainly poor, with a few individuals associated with the central government that are extremely wealthy and live off contracts, mainly in oil so it it really didn't manifest in the kind of leadership i think uh, iraqis were hoping for but if we're talking beyond this paper then we we do hypothesize that this is likely to change in in the future but
0: to this point so far that assumption on the part of those political elites has turned out to mostly be right in terms of their ability to continue winning the electoral votes while also being able to put down protests like the 2019 one, which emerged. So in a sense, it it seems like they've made a rational gamble here.
3: Yeah, it's definitely at the start of, maybe we can say the change, because in the 2021 federal elections, the most recent ones, where we did see a number of independents and new political parties win seats, they were actually from the South provinces like the Iqar and Najaf. Um, So I think we're slowly starting to see that and southern Iraq is actually ahead of the rest of the country um, in wanting to see local leadership change and are showing that at the ballot box.
0: Now some of the things you don't put a lot of emphasis on are interesting as well. You don't seem to put a lot of stock in arguments that this is something to do with Shiism, for example, or the Hausa.
4: Well uh... I didn't want to be a stereotype, Mark, as you know, I always do. I always do work on the hausa. So I thought I don't I don't think anyone else wants to hear from me talking about it. But jokes aside, there are particular places where the hausa and the religious institution does play a role. And I think it's important to note that when Hamza and I worked on this paper, the idea was that this is a puzzle that we still don't feel satisfied by our answer. We still think there is more out there that we want to uncover. But we really just wanted to invite everyone to focus Mm on it because it truly is puzzling. It goes against a lot of what we think about how areas develop. Um, And so exactly like you said, this other potential argument. Um, can explain maybe subnational variation in development in the South or subregional variation in development, where if you look at Najaf and Karbala, for example, they do fare better than the other governors in the South. And of course, that has to do with religious tourism, which brings them a lot of revenue. But it may also have to do with the fact that where there's a strong religious establishment and a presence, there's also less space for uh, non-state or semi-state armed actors uh, to wreak havoc in local communities and to make it hard to, you know, to to have projects, infrastructure projects, or to build or, um, you know, open businesses or anything like that. In a place like Najaf in particular, the Shia religious establishment is very strong. Um, In Karbala, the, the, the shrines actually operate businesses that are monopolizing the local economy. Uh, so you do see variation within the region. I think that really is an interesting next question, because in a way, the religious establishment is a Shia leadership that never quite made it to the ballot box uh, for various reasons, but do represent um, a very viable form and perhaps the last left viable form of Shia leadership in Iraq.
3: And if I can add to to Marcin's mm-hmm. point, I think we... we touched on the, the idea of leadership um, and the fact that because Southern Iraq was um, impacted by Saddam Hussein's genocide, um, a lot of political leaders from the South were persecuted, that 2003, when uh, when after this regime change, the leadership that came from Southern Iraq weren't necessarily the ones uh, leading the political change or or the opposition to Saddam Hussein uh, back in the eighties, and that that is a factor to be played. For example, Muqtada al-Sadr was, you know, in his twenties uh, when two thousand three happened, and and the and and his followers followed him because of his father, not because of him. And you can say that for other political parties from southern Iraq.
0: Now, one of the things which is interesting there in in terms of, uh, I guess, one of the last arguments you make is that the international community is also not very interested in supporting a region which they tend to just assume is uh is iran dominated.
3: Yeah, I mean I I worked in international development in Iraq uh, in 2019 and 2020 and I saw this firsthand which is why we did include this. Mm-hmm. Um and and that there is an economy based around international development in Northern Iraq, um, which is seen as more stable, seen as further away from Iran, especially um, in Erbil and Duhok, less so in But it is a factor that's being played and it was only until the 2019 October protest did the international community see the impact that Southern Iraq can have on national politics, uh, the destabilizing factor Uh, it can have majority of the Iraqi population is from southern Iraq. And I think that was forgotten until the protests. And we're slowly starting to see that change.
0: And of course, the the, the intense international focus on fighting uh, the Islamic State also contributed to the diversion of resources.
4: Yes, of course. But I think a lot of people also forget that in the fight against ISIS, the South did absorb a lot of refugees or internally displaced people. Um, It usually fell along sect-based lines. So a lot of the the Shia in in northern Iraq fled to southern Iraq, and many of them remain there to this day. Um, And I mean, I just wanted to reemphasize what Hamza said in the sense that there's been stable strongholds in the South for years that the international aid community has never approached or gotten near, despite them being very viable, um, very viable alternatives, but also um, uh, starting points for important projects in poorer governorates. And this is largely because no one wants to tackle the idea of how close is Shia exactly to Iran.
0: I want to go back to something Hamza was talking about at the beginning of the conversation, which is the South as a region. There have been political projects out there uh, to kind of actually make this manifest. And what is the status of those today?
4: So there's several uh, projects to make the South officially a region. Um, The first one was adjusted, but... And really, it was suggested in two thousand and three, but it really never manifested into anything, you know, anything big or anything successful. Um, it was by then the Supreme Council for exporting the revolution to Iraq who suggested it. And it was the idea of creating a region that encompassed the governorates. Uh, that were Shia, that were south of Baghdad. So it's the the same governors we talk about. Um, That never came to fruition. In the end, what happened is that uh, Iraq developed what Hamza calls an uneven federalism because you had Shia politicians and Kurdish politicians agreeing that Kurdistan needed to be a region for various reasons, but it would make uh, sense to have the rest of Iraq be... Basically, nominally a, f- a federal system, but in fact really under centralized control and centralized rule. Uh, since then, there's been attempts by Basra specifically mm-hmm. to create a region, sometimes by itself, sometimes with the two other governorates uh, in in southern Iraq. So those mainly came because of a sense of uh, a sense of neglect from people in Basra who saw that their governorate provided um, probably over 90 percent of Iraq's wealth or Iraqi South provided over 90 percent of Iraq's wealth um, and really saw very little return on that when it comes to services. And I'm, you know, for those following Iraq, in particular, there was a moment in which Basra's water became so poisonous that it was colored red. It was so unsanitary, and you know, the environment was so polluted that it became largely because of the existence of these oil fields as well, that it became really difficult for its citizens to accept their position as essentially the bank that funds the Iraqi state while being completely neg- neglected in every other way. And so that's when the calls for um, regions developed in in, in Basra. Um, I'll let Hamza talk about this uh, for a bit, but the calls for a region within Basra differ a lot from the calls for a region that you see in in Iraqi Kurdistan, for example, because they have different perceptions of the center of power in Iraq.
3: Yeah, I mean, I did some field work in Basra in May twenty twenty two, on the issue of federalism, um, interviewing uh, MPs. A lot of them were former provincial uh, council members, um, with with businessmen in in Basra as well as uh, political science students. I visited their campus and and held discussion groups with them. And when we were talking about you know a region or federalism in Iraq, they'd say. They'd be very cautious and say, we're not here to divide Iraq. We're not here to divide our country. We'd want this region to be constitutional, abide by the Constitution. You know, referring to Iraqi Kurdistan, not always playing by the Mm -hmm. by the rules and trying to reinsure that they are nationalist, but they want to ensure their rights. So it is a different type of um, ambition than uh, Iraqi Kurdistan.
4: No,
0: it's interesting. Now, you know in talking about all of these uh, all of these problems we already mentioned this earlier in the conversation but let's go back to it a bit which is the inability of the of the uh, of the 2019 protest movement or these other protest movements to force meaningful change even on not just on democracy but on these issues of services and development and how do you explain that and then the ability of the national elite to ignore repress or just like you know, not respond to these movements.
3: It's interesting you, you mentioned services and the new MPs because um, whether you, the, the, the new MPs are from new political parties mm-hmm. born out of the protest movement or from established political parties. There has been an awakening for MPs from Southern Iraq that they need to kind of get their act together, they need to focus more on services. Um, Which is why, you know, I've heard people working in the Araki parliament calling this uh, government the the service government. And it even extends to the executive branch where Prime Minister Sudani, um, some have referred to him as the mayor of Baghdad rather than (laughs) the prime minister because they're focusing on, you know, roads, pavement, services like that. And so it's, it's interesting to see the response that officials have. But it's also interesting to, know, to kind of notice that, you know, is it an MP's job to really be getting involved in municipal services? Is that the job of an Iraqi MP? And you kind of really see Iraq still trying to find its footing, um, especially as we're seeing this our first wave of a new generation of MPs come through.
0: It raises questions about the role of the parliament as a whole and kind of the nature of the political system that Iraq has developed since 2003. And kind of where is the actual locus of power? Is it with the militias, parliament, the presidency? I mean, where Where is the locus of power now?
4: I think the locus of power remains within parliament and within the executive branch. And I think even the militias and armed groups in Iraq, they aren't—they're uh, not looking to challenge the existence of parliament or the executive branch, but rather to like ally themselves with it and control it. Which suggests that it is right now the most um, most accessible and most um, efficient means of control in the country. Um, and I don't think that's likely to change either. Uh, you know, Parliament still is the center that deter- that votes for the presidency, for the speaker, for the Prime Minister. Um, everything ultimately goes through Parliament. and you can see that political parties, no matter how you know, entrenched, powerful, how wealthy they are due to you know, corruption or non-corruption, but either way, no matter who they are, they still participate in elections. Um, and are still invested in the outcome uh, of elections. And this includes the ones who have armed wings, by the way. And I think the most interesting thing is that they were still surprised by the outcome of the elections, uh, which keeps them invested in, in, in elections in the long run. So I think, you know, Iraq right now, 2023, the center of power in the country is still parliament and the executive
0: no, that's quite interesting. Um, but then both of you mentioned earlier, uh, this, this idea that we might be entering into a period of change. And you mentioned the, the the new MPs, and of course, these youth movements. What do you think change might look like in terms of looking ahead uh, beyond 2023?
3: I think they have uh, a lot on their hands to try to build an actual opposition within parliament. So, We still don't have a culture of opposition in Iraq. It's been consensus government after consensus Mm -hmm. government. So yes, we've had successive um, transfers of power, regular elections. But the thing that's kind of still missing in Iraq's democracy is uh, a genuine opposition in parliament. And this is the first um, election that we can kind of see an opposition group and now they have to figure out how they can, you know, go against norm, normal practices and build an opposition from within. Um, especially, when there's a lot of pressure from the local population that elected them for populist decisions like mass mass hiring of of, mm-hmm. of in the public sector, um, moving their. Getting their paperwork done for them, uh, fast forwarding them through the, the Iraqi bureaucracy—things that not necessarily an opposition parliamentary is is meant to do—and so Prison, I, I personal think personal Wasta stuff, Jordanian style. Exactly, exactly. You know what I'm talking about here, what Mark. You tell the story of. Um... Yeah, and maybe to kind of give a, a personal story about it. Uh, there was an MP from najaf He received the most votes, around uh, twenty-two thousand, I believe. Um, he's an independent and he got got a, got received requests from his constituents about, you know, someone's a police officer and wants to be transferred from one neighborhood to another. And I remember uh, and one of one of them got upset uh, because the MP respondent said, this isn't my job to transfer you from one neighborhood to another. That's the Ministry of Interior's job. If it's the bus fare that you're struggling with, I'll pay your, your fare for every month, but please don't come to me with this kind of request. <laughs> and it's it, this is the right response from an MP, but it upset the person and, and that's not really what the population is expecting from them. So it's going to take time for MPs to educate uh, the population on what their role exactly is and what they can actually achieve and how long it will be for them to build this culture of opposition.
0: There's a, There's been a lot of talk about this new draft elections law. Would this make it more or less likely uh, that the South would be able to press its demands uh, politically? I mean, if, if it actually comes to pass.
4: I mean, you, you asked earlier about Tishreen and this ties into it very well. So the one of the big changes that Tishreen ushered is this new electoral law that divides Iraq into 83 districts. Uh, previously, they had been 18, one for each governorate. And what this did is it really allowed grassroots campaigning to be fruitful for, for candidates. And it resulted in a lot of young people winning, a lot of people with you know, few and limited resources winning, a lot of new political parties winning. I say a lot, but I mean, a lot for Iraq standards. They're not an overwhelming majority in parliament or uh-huh. anything. But still, it ushered in change that we hadn't seen before. And I think it was really made possible by the fact that these districts were small enough to be maneuverable for some with modest means and I've interviewed a lot of female candidates um, for a different research project and I asked them about their campaigning and they said you know it wouldn't have been possible for us to campaign at a governor-wide level and this new law really made it easy for us to campaign and it changed the the layout of, of parliament it changed the the structure I mean a lot of parties were really surprised by how poorly they did. A lot of traditional ones. This includes um, Fatah, the, the PMF-aligned political party, as well as former Prime Minister Abadi's party. Ammar um, al-Hakim had allied with him. But, you know, they had expected themselves to be performing so much better, but they performed much worse. And this is largely due to this new system. But what's happening in, in the Iraqi parliament right now is, trying to remove this small electoral district and to go back to the governorate size mm-hmm. district, which would, of course, favor the parties in power and disempower those that had the modest means. But critically, it would also disempower the sudrists. And I think that's really... Who this law is, who this change in um, in the electoral law is going after? It's not going after the Tishrinis. It is going to make life very difficult for them next time they want to run. But it really is targeted at Muqtada Sadr because he was the one from the traditional elite who was most savvy about uh, the eighty AB, the eighty three districts and was able to take a modest number of votes and translate it into a very good number of seats, uh, whereas his rivals couldn't. And I think this is just them working to make sure that he can't have the same position next uh, in the next election. But of course, like I said, this is going to disempower a lot of people who are eager to work on reforms from within, eager to represent their communities. A lot of them, like Hamza, that are from southern Iraq, um, a lot of young women from areas of the mid Euphrates who were running for the first time aren't going to be able to gather the same resources, and, um, you know, travel across a governor in the same way they were able to in, in their neighborhoods where they're known. And this is a fear right now. And it's something that's very much rejected, by the way, by Iraqi civil society. And it's considered a step back uh, for Iraq's uh, path to democratization
0: maybe one last question, Hamza, maybe do you have any final reflections then on kind of what have we learned uh, about Iraq or about federalism from uh, from the article and from the research that you've been doing on this uh, this, again, quite puzzling um, uh, set of development indicators coming out of the Iraqi south?
3: I think the lesson is that, yes, Iraq was historically centralized under the Ba'ath regime but that different areas were impacted differently. And this really impacted 2003 Iraq that I don't think um, the architects of regime change had foreseen. And that because they had not foreseen it, um, political scientists, analysts, aren't really giving credit to Iraqi people as they themselves evolve with their understanding of federalism and trying to push for their rights within the new Iraqi constitution.
0: That's really interesting. We've been speaking to Marcin al-Shamari and uh, Hamza Haddad.